0: This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. The album that introduced Bob Marley and the Wailers to the U.S. and the U.K., Catch a Fire, was produced by my guest Chris Blackwell for his record label, Island Records. The second Wailers album Blackwell released, Burning, included this anthem. Get
1: up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right.
0: Blackwell and Marley continued to work together until Marley's death. Chris Blackwell was an executive producer of the film *The Harder They Come* and released the soundtrack with the now classic title song by the film's star, Jimmy Cliff. But that's just one side of the music Blackwell was behind. His label recorded U2, Grace Jones, Tom Waits, Roxy Music, Steve Winwood, Cat Stevens, the B52s, and many more. He also founded the film production company Island Alive, which made the films *Koyaanisqatsi*, *Mona Lisa*, *Kiss of the Spider Woman*, and the Talking Heads concert film. Stop making sense. Even before he got into the music business, Blackwell had a fascinating life. He grew up in Jamaica, where his mother was close friends with Ian Fleming, who wrote the James Bond books, the great songwriter Noel Coward, and the movie star Errol Flynn. Blackwell knew these men and worked as a scout and production assistant on the early Bond film Dr. No. Chris Blackwell has written a new memoir called The Islander, My Life in Music and Beyond. Chris Blackwell, welcome to Fresh Air. It's a pleasure to have you on our show, and thank you for all the wonderful music that you've released over the decades. You grew up in Jamaica. You scouted island music. How did you first hear Bob Marley and the Oilers?
2: It was in the early 60s. He had started and was produced by a well-known Jamaican producer called Lee Perry, who was really a brilliant guy. And that's the person who first started recording him. And then Bob joined up with the two other guys, Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler. And that was the Whalers.
0: So when you first heard Bob Marley, you were unimpressed. And then about 10 years later, you heard Bob Marley and the Whalers, and you signed them. So when you heard them 10 years later what impressed
2: you? I started to hear them really quite a bit because they, they started to build up their own following in Jamaica. They were very popular. But it was um, I actually met them in London when they were stranded in London because they uh, had been doing some work in Scandinavia, but they hadn't been given the funds to go back to Jamaica. And they asked if could I meet with them and see if there's a deal I could give them in some way which could get them back to Jamaica. And so I said yes, and they came in to meet me in the office, and uh, I was impressed in the moment they walked in. For people who were stranded, they didn't look stranded, they didn't feel stranded, they were, they were powerful, they were strong. And um, so, you know, I chatted with them for a bit, and that's really where it built off.
0: So you decided you wanted to make them more internationally uh, famous and really get them to an American audience and a british audience so um you tried to you tried to bridge the gap between reggae, which most Americans and Brits weren't yet familiar with, and rock, which they were so on Concrete Jungle, which they had already recorded, you decided for the first album that you produced with them, to add guitar on that track. And it was a session guitarist from Muscle Shoals, from the famous Muscle Shoals studio in Alabama. Um, So tell us a little bit more about deciding to add the guitar.
2: Well, um, I really wanted them to have a record which would appeal to people who liked rock music. And guitar is a key thing in rock music. And this guitarist I knew because I'd worked with him in Muscle shows, And um, I, I brought him in and uh, asked him to play on the record. And he had a little difficulty initially because the, the rhythm was very different to the normal rhythms that he was playing, which was in rock music, etc. And this had a kind of Jamaican uh, rhythm to it. But he he played... And he played absolutely brilliantly, and he just, he just, he opened everything, really. He's really responsible a lot for Bob Marley and the Wailers really taking life on record.
0: Well, let's hear the version that you produced with Wayne Perkins on guitar, and this is Bob Marley on the Wailers' Concrete Jungle. That was The Whalers' Concrete Jungle, which was uh, released on the Island Record Label, the record label created by my guest Chris Blackwell. And Blackwell has a new memoir called The Islander. So Chris Blackwell, what did Bob Marley think of the guitar opening that we just heard?
2: I think he was a little unsure about it at first, but he ended up loving it. And when I say ended up loving it a few hours later he he loved it after it was it was played we played it back a few times and he just got a feel of it and everything and, and he saw he saw how it fit and it didn't it didn't sort of bury the reggae feel at all or the jamaican feel at all but it added something fresh which he hadn't worked with before hadn't sung with before
0: you were close with Bob Marley until he died of cancer in the early 80s And he had written a song toward the end called Redemption Song that he played for you. And you convinced him to just do it solo, just voice and his guitar. Um, Why did you want him to record it that way?
2: Because I thought it was a very moving song, a very important song, something which really would touch the soul. And I I I wanted it to be... Just very clear, just his voice and guitar. I didn't want to hear a bass, a drums, uh, you know, any other musical instruments. I felt it should just be something which you just heard. It was very clear and it would move you.
0: Well, why don't we hear this version of Redemption Song where it's just Bob Marley and his guitar?
1: All pirates, yes, rabbi. Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate
0: yourself That was Bob Marley Vocals and Guitar singing a song, Redemption Song, from his final album, Uprising, and that's the last track on that album. Um,
2: It's the last track he recorded.
0: And the last track he recorded. Yes. It seems like a fitting last track, doesn't it?
2: It really does. It really does.
0: So you grew up in Jamaica. Your mother's family had been the Banana Kings of Costa Rica When she was born in 1912, the family relocated to Jamaica after she was born and developed sugarcane fields and then bought rum manufacturing companies. Your father was born in England. His father was Irish and was a descendant of the founders of the Cross and Blackwell Food Company. So it sounds like, yeah, you came from, uh, you know, a very, very privileged background in Jamaica. Um, Your mother was friends with Ian Fleming. Who wrote the James Bond novels? And a couple of the characters in his stories were inspired by your mother. Which characters?
2: One was called Pussy Galore, and the other one was called um, Gosh, I can't remember the I can't remember the other one. But that was that was the main one.
0: <laughs> but it was the character Ursula Andrus played.
2: That's right, Ursula. Yes, that's right.
0: Um, so you got your start in music, scouting records for jukeboxes. Uh, and at one time, you were responsible for 63 jukeboxes in Jamaica. And for people who who are too, too young to remember jukeboxes, you'd put in a coin or two and choose the record you wanted to hear, and the record would play. What was the importance of jukeboxes in Jamaica at the time you were filling the jukeboxes?
2: Well, if you are making a record, your best opportunity is to get it played by um, people would be uh, in jukeboxes because um, the radio station would play usually English recordings Winifred Atwell, who was a hugely popular uh, piano player in England or American music would be mainly played on the radio and Jamaican music wasn't played that much
0: You also scouted records for sound systems, and these were the sound systems, you know, that basically DJs would use at parties. Um, Why were sound systems so important in Jamaica in spreading new music?
2: Well, they made these speakers, massive speakers. I mean, really would be like 15 foot high, you know, with huge, huge speakers in them. And you could hear them four or five miles away literally when they were blasting in the country and it was great i mean it was really exciting and then the closer you got there the more people there were there and that's really where all the action was and the people who did those sound systems you know they carried liquor liquor there and uh, played the music there and the people would pay an entry fee there and what I did was look for recordings which I thought that they would really like, and bring them to Jamaica and sold it to them.
0: Oh, and you describe it that it was like very competitive, because each person who had a sound system wanted to have great music that no one else had. So you'd scout records, including in the U.S., and then scrape off the label so that no one could figure out what it was, <laughs> so that they couldn't couldn't find it. Um, That's right. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like it was quite a time. It sounds like very unique to Jamaica.
2: Well, it it was really great. Thinking back on that period in time, it was great fun, and it was really exciting when those sound systems would be blasting. You couldn't, you couldn't believe how loud they'd be, and you'd find people sometimes sleeping on the speakers, and you'd think, how can they be sleeping on those speakers? You can hear the music three miles away, but they would be sleeping on the speakers because they'd been up for one or two days probably playing the recordings. It was hilarious.
0: You decided to start your own record company. You'd been hunting for records and for jukeboxes and for sound systems, and it was an exciting way to, to uh, to earn a living, and you were also very excited by the music. You were finding and loved scouting music, So you decided to start your own record company, which was Island Records. Did you have a creed when you started the company of, like, how you wanted to define yourself and Island?
2: I just wanted to find and look for and meet talent, you know. And when there was somebody who I thought I could do something with, some way I could help them or guide them, then I would uh, look to sign them and then, um, you know, go in the studio with them and work on the recording with them and then release it. And, you know, I'd go around the stores to get it sold. I'd put them in the jukeboxes, etc. cetera. And um, that's really what I was doing. And I was doing that all the time because uh, after the first few recordings, all of which were successful, mainly because they hadn't been that kind of music around before,
0: You know, in in your book, you write that one of the reasons why you left Jamaica and went to England is that when Jamaica was getting its independence, you felt like you were on the wrong side of history in Jamaica. And, you know, your parents or your mother's family had a banana plantation in Jamaica. Um, So I'm wondering what it was like for you to work with artists. How did you bridge that gap? Did they see you as, you know, representing the colonizers?
2: I don't think so, really, because, um, you know, I didn't sort of live that kind of way. I was I was very close with uh, Jamaicans, you know, I, I really was. I cared a lot for them. I love them a lot, still do. They're wonderful people. And um, I went to England, really, because I felt that the music that I was doing could really start to work in England, and I could open it up to a much wider audience than just Jamaica.
0: The first big hit that you had after starting Island was a song called My Boy Lollipop by Millie Small. Now, she she was, what, 15 when you recorded her?
2: 16, maybe 17.
0: So you wanted to bring her over to England to record her, but you needed her mother's permission. And she had a very unusual sound, a, a really kind of high-pitched voice. What attracted you to her and how did you match up the song My Boy Lollipop to her? The song was written by Robert Spencer of the doo up group The Cadillacs.
2: Well, I first heard her singing a song called Wheel Meat, and that was produced by really the top Jamaican producer in those days called Cox and Dodd. And um, whenever I played it for anybody in England, they would insist that I, I give them I let them take the record. They wouldn't leave my house unless I would let them take the record. And I thought to myself, well, if, if everybody loves this that much, I should really go and check out and see if I could maybe bring her over to England and find a hit for her in England. So that's what I did. I went to Jamaica and I br- brought her back to England. And um, I also brought a guitarist, a Jamaican jazz guitarist, a brilliant musician. I brought him over to And Ernest Ranglin was a guitarist. And we went in the studio, and uh, when we produced that record, it was only one minute and 58 seconds. And um, when I heard it, I knew it was going to be a hit. I just knew it. I don't know how to tell you why I knew it, but I just knew it because it just felt perfect.
0: Well, I will tell you before we hear this record that I used to do, I think... A not half bad Millie Small impression.
2: <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yes,
0: I would do that for my friends, and they, I think I think it's fair to say they thought it was like not bad. <laughs> so.
2: Uh, that's good.
0: So let's hear my boy Lollipop. This is Millie Small. <laughs> Millie Smalls recording My Boy Lollipop, the first really big hit that Chris Blackwell had on his record label Island Records. Well, let's take another break here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Chris Blackwell, the founder of Island Records. He has a new memoir, which is called The Islander. We'll be right back. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with Chris Blackwell, the founder of Island Records, which recorded such diverse performers as Bob Marley and the Wailers, Jimmy Cliff, U2, Grace Jones, Tom Waits, Roxy Music, Steve Winwood, Cat Stevens, the B-52s, and many more. He grew up in Jamaica, which is where he started his career in the music business. That's how he got a head start on reggae music and helped popularize it in the U.S. and U.K. He's written a new memoir called The Islander. When we left off, we were talking about the first big hit for Island Records, the 1964 recording My Boy Lollipop by Jamaican singer Millie Small. Well, success certainly changed Millie Small's life. How did it change your life?
2: Well, it really changed my life because I went from... from normally, I'd been driving around London, going to all the record stores and selling to the, 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 in the Jamaican areas and I loved doing it. I was really enjoying it. And um, when this record came out, suddenly I was in studios, you know, um, with the, the, you know, the the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, the, you know. So I went from nowhere to being right up at, at that kind of top level in terms of connections it wasn't that i didn't be, i wouldn't didn't become personally top it was just that i was around them and it changed it, it you know changed my life and suddenly you know you're somebody that people will will call you and and say oh they'd like you to do a record which is in fact what happened and that's how the spencer davis group um happened because somebody rang me and told me in birmingham there's a group you should come and see and i went to see them and uh They were incredible and became a huge band. And uh, I went to Birmingham one weekend and uh, I heard a band playing and um, they sounded really, really good and I was walking up some steps because the band were playing on the third floor and uh, that was quite unusual. And on my way up the steps I was hearing this voice which was incredible who was sounding like Ray Charles on the helium, you know, which helium changes the pitch of your voice. And um, when I finally got there, it was this very young lad, I would think 16 or 17, and it was Steve Winwood. And that started um, the band the uh, Spencer Davis Group.
0: What's the Spencer Davis Group song that you feel like you had the most influence on?
2: Well, the first one was called Keep On Running. And that was actually written by one of the Jamaican artists that I recorded right at the beginning. And that was the first one, Keep On Running. And then uh, they went on to make some really great recordings, wonderful recordings. Steve Winwood was a masterpiece as a singer, songwriter, and musician. You know, he he could play guitar, keyboard, piano. He was just a master, and I'm sure he still is.
0: Well, the Spencer Davis group's big hits were "I'm a man and "Give me some Lovin," but you mentioned "Keep on running," and it's interesting that you mentioned that because that song was written by a Jamaican musician, and so it again just leaps back to your Jamaican roots and your interest in in reggae music and how that kind of continued to influence your career and your music choices
2: absolutely did and th- and that was what was so great that was such a joy for me the fact that that was happening you know the fact that i was able to get that to happen was great and whether it was jimmy cliff or wilfred edwards who was the person who who wrote that first song keep on running
0: it wasn't jackie edwards
2: well wilfred is his real name i thought wilfred was a little little difficult so i changed it to jackie Oh I you got changed him his to name. change it today. <laughs>
0: yeah. well, that's funny. <laughs> okay. So let's hear the Spencer Davis group keep on running. Spencer Davis Group Keep on Running which was released on the label Island Records which was founded by my guest Chris Blackwell who has a new memoir called The Islander. You um were an executive producer on the film The Harder They Come which is set in the Jamaican music industry and starred Jimmy Cliff the singer and songwriter who recorded the title song The Harder They Come and uh, the the film came out in 1972. This was like a really important reggae song. Um, So I want to play it, but do you want to say a few words about The Harder They Come, the film and the song, or about Jimmy Cliff before we hear the song?
2: Sure. Jimmy Cliff is one of the best artists ever out of Jamaica. He was super talented from very young. He had a strange sort of beginning in life because he was not in touch with his mother at all, or nor his father. He was really like a, a loner. Um, I saw him doing a show uh, one time, and I spoke to him and persuaded him to come over to England and come and work with me in England, and he came over to England. And right at the beginning, he actually was in the studio when I was recording the Spencer Davis group's Keep On Running, if you listen to it, you'll hear the kind of clapping and things, and that was Jimmy Cliff in the studio. and then from there, he advanced, and he started to form his own band and everything, and he was doing he was doing really well, but we, we just couldn't get it. we just he was doing well, like he would do shows and things, and people would like the shows, but we never really had a hit which could get him on the radio and get him famous, as it were. And when the opportunity came for him to play a part in a movie, I said, you should definitely do that. And he did that. And uh, he also wrote a lot of the songs for the movie. And he was the star of the movie. And that movie really had a tremendous effect on, on bringing the Jamaican world Music and and culture and everything to the forefront.
0: Um, well, let's hear the harder they come. And this is Jimmy Cliff, recorded in was it 1972? About that. Okay. <laughs> Jimmy Cliff The Harder They Come and the album was released on Island Records the record label uh, created and owned by my guest Chris Blackwell well let's take a short break here and then we'll talk some more if you're just joining us my guest is Chris Blackwell he was the founder of Island Records and the movie production company Island Alive now he has a new memoir called The Islander and the island refers to Jamaica where he is from we'll be right back after we take a short break this is Fresh Air.
3: Support for NPR and the following message come from Culturel. For reducing occasional bloating, gas, and diarrhea, Culturel Digestive Daily Probiotics are designed to support digestive and immune health and are the number one pharmacist-recommended probiotic brand, according to a 2021 survey among pharmacists. Use code NPR at culturel.com to save 20% on your order. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So
0: we've been talking mostly about the Jamaican music that you produced. But after moving to England, you produced a lot of British performers. And um, one of the groups you produced was You 2 And you were unimpressed with them the first time you heard them. On record, on a tape, and then you heard them in person and signed them. What made you so enthusiastic after being not so much?
2: Well, because of their passion and because of their drive. I never produced you um, two, actually. Never produced any records with you two. You, you two.
0: You released them, but you didn't produce them.
2: Yes, released them right. But you um, two ran their own show all the time. They were lucky in that they had a man who was a really good manager and he he recognized the talent in the band and he did a great job for the band and the band, you know, lived up to it and expanded it and became who they became, the biggest bands in the world.
0: So... Um Joshua Tree was a huge success. U2 was a huge success. But the success kind of led to some financial problem indirectly for Island Records because you had taken some money and invested it in your film company, and then you ended up owing uh, U2 an enormous amount of money in royalties because their music was doing so well. So it's like an example in the music industry or in the entertainment industry – how success can sometimes cause problems <laughs> for 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 the label so how did you end up working that out cuz you didn't have the money to pay the royalties
2: well the the best way to sort it out was to was to offer them an interest in the label itself that was the best solution i mean there were no there were no arguments about the whole process what had happened is this film i did didn't really work so i didn't really have 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 the funds i I didn't deliberately not pay them when it was due i just didn't have the funds and when when that happened that we we were able to sit down and work out something because the relationship between myself and the band and the management of the band was was always good it's good to this day and um, that that was a way of solving a problem I had was to give them some of the, the company and I was very happy to do that and I think they were happy to do that and we went on from there
0: so let's hear something from U2's 1987 album Joshua Tree which was a huge hit for them do you have a favorite song from that album
2: um, yeah, I sort of can't find what I'm looking for.
0: And w- what do you love about it?
2: I love it because it, it's a good song. It's beautifully sung, beautifully played. Everything, you know, and it's 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 meaningful. You know, it's it's a great song.
0: Okay, so let's hear it. And this is you two from their album Joshua Tree. That was you too. I still haven't found what I'm looking for from their 1987 album, The Joshua Tree, and that was released on Island Records, the label which was created by my guest Chris Blackwell. And Chris Blackwell has a new memoir now called The Islander. One of the things I think you really did um, was help nurture talent by giving them what they needed. Um and you weren't very, like, hands-on as a, as a producer. Your idea of your role was to make it happen and also to be one of the first listeners and to give some feedback. Um, and sometimes the feedback was accepted, and sometimes, like, the band really knew or the performer really knew what they wanted, and you, you know, often just said, that's, you know, go ahead, do your thing. Um, one of the people who you signed was Tom Waits, and he'd been around before you signed him. But I think it's fair to say his, his music started to change after you signed him. Can you talk about what attracted you to his music and the, what you did that enabled him to expand musically?
2: Well, firstly, he's just somewhat of a genius character. He's an unusual person. You know, He's, uh, he's that, that's the only way I can describe it. He's really a unique character. And I met him and I just I just loved the guy, do you know? He was just totally different. But it wasn't a music that I could help him with in any way at all. He, he was a songwriter, he was a singer, he was a performer. He had all those things well. He did his own thing as he wanted to do it and that was it. And, and, and the best role I could do was t- to help as much as I could to get the record out and to get them marketed etc um, but I totally believed in him he was he's a unique character absolutely
0: Chris Blackwell thank you so much for talking with us
2: thank you very much I enjoyed it very much <laughs>
1: inside a broken clock, <laughs>
0: Blackwell is the founder of Island Records. His new memoir is called The Islander. After we take a short break, Maureen Corrigan will review a new book about the pioneering surgeon who led the team that reconstructed the faces of some of the men who suffered facial trauma during World War I. This is Fresh Air. The Face Maker is one book title that's meant to be taken literally. In it, medical historian Lindsay Fitzharris describes the work of a pioneering plastic surgeon who reconstructed the faces of soldiers who'd suffered severe facial trauma during World War I. Our book critic Maureen Corrigan has a review.
3: There were no textbooks. That's the one detail amidst all the other revelations that Lindsay Fitzharris offers in The Facemaker that continues to take me aback. There were no textbooks for the British surgeon Harold Gillies to consult when he and his team were called upon to reconstruct the faces of some of the estimated 280,000 men who suffered facial trauma during World War One. Those soldiers' faces were shattered and burned by the new technologies that that war ushered in. Machine guns, chemical weapons, flamethrowers, shells, and hot chunks of shrapnel from explosives. As one battlefield nurse said, "The science of healing stood baffled before the science of destroying." In *The Face Maker*, Fitzharris, a historian of science and medicine, has written a riveting old-fashioned, man-meets-the-moment account of Gilly's work in the field of plastic surgery before plastic surgery as a field officially existed. As Fitzharris acknowledges, procedures such as the correction of cleft palate and ear pinning had been performed well before World War I, and some rudimentary plastic operations involving skin grafts and rubber prostheses were conducted on soldiers whose faces were damaged in the American Civil War. But the wreckage the military technology of World War I inflicted on human bodies was different in kind and degree. As Fitzharris says, physical injuries were only part of the grievous wounds these men endured. Unlike amputees, men whose facial features were disfigured were not necessarily celebrated as heroes. Whereas a missing leg might elicit sympathy and respect, a damaged face often caused feelings of revulsion and disgust. In France, they were called the broken faces, while in Germany, they were commonly described as twisted faces. In Britain, they were known simply as the loneliest of Tommies, the most tragic of all war victims, strangers to themselves. Gillies, who was in his early 30s at the beginning of the war, initially volunteered as a battlefield surgeon. What he witnessed in France and Belgium, including the work of dental surgeons who were ministering to men with missing jaws and obliterated noses, prompted him to set up first a hospital ward and eventually an entire military hospital in England dedicated exclusively to facial reconstruction. Upon the opening of that first site, Cambridge Military Hospital, casualties began pouring in, some with labels indicating name, type of wound, and whether they had received an anti-tetanus injection. Many, however, bore labels that simply read, G.O.K., God only knows. Gillies was a pioneer, not only in plastic surgery— But in assembling a multidisciplinary team of surgeons, dentists, artists, anesthesiologists, sculptors, and photographers, this team was these broken soldiers' last best hope. There's an inherent danger of sensationalism in this subject of gruesome facial injuries, but Fitzharris is a pretty straightforward writer, relying on letters, reports, and newspaper accounts to give vivid immediacy to the patient's ordeals. Gillies, who seems to have been universally hailed as a kind, even fun-loving doctor, would greet newly admitted patients with what became his trademark words of reassurance. Don't worry, Sonny, you'll be all right and have as good a face as most of us before we're finished with you. Fitzharris describes how before each major operation, Gillies would sequester himself in his office, obsessively reviewing his plan for a patient's face and smoking nonstop. Once in the operating room, Gillies and his team might have to excise thick scar tissue and maybe take skin flaps from a patient's cheek and chin to construct a new top lip. Sometimes, an entire face would be drawn on a patient's chest and transplanted whole. As Gillies was perfecting his techniques through trial and error, inevitably procedures failed. Noses collapsed. Skin grafts didn't take. When the soldiers' wounds were too severe for surgery, the artists stepped in, surveying pre-war photographs to craft lifelike masks out of painted metal. The horrible irony was that many of Gilly's recovered patients would be sent back to the front, fodder for the war machine. In The Facemaker, Fitzharris includes a few before-and-after photographs of Gilly's patients— It's impossible to look at these side-by-side photos of their faces without feeling first ashamed and then awed by what we humans are capable of doing to and for each other. Maureen Corrigan
0: is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed The Facemaker by Lindsay Fitzharris. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about some of the latest developments in the January 6th investigations by the Justice Department and the House Select Committee and look ahead to the committee's first public hearing. Our guest will be Luke Broadwater, who covers Congress for The New York Times and has been reporting on the latest revelations. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Sam Briggert, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Henry Baudonato, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Chaloner directed today's show. I'm Terry Gross.